Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Hi, hi. You're prettier than most of our audiences. This episode is a bit like, well, your ideal dinner party, we hope, where there's, you know, interesting and fun people having uh, smart conversations. And first up, please, a warm welcome for Mr. Anthony Keeger. I said that weirdly because I've known Anthony for a number of years. Because, Many years. Because he's a homosexual and I'm a homosexual and all homosexuals know each other. <laughs> but I never really thought before whether it's Kiger or Keeger until I had to say it on radio. It's actually Keeger. Silent G. Silent G? Mm. Wow. That's the absolute height of notions. <laughs> <laughs> he is a self-described former drag clown. He's an uber-colorful and, I shall say, sexy performer. Uh, and his latest gig is called Sodom and Bagara. So that tells you everything you need to know about him. Please welcome Anthony. Next Anthony over here is another, well, London Irish celebrity taunt. It's Brona Titley. <laughs> She's a comedy writer and actor whose wit and words play into shows like 8 Out of 10 Cats and into the mouths of people like Tracy Ullman. So, um, please, another warm welcome for Brona. And then over here on this side, all the way from County Cork. Well, you're a native of County Cork, but not living there at the moment. It's uh, Irla Leonard. Irla here has been performing since he was a small child, and he now tours the world, you know, singing with the super group, I think is what we were, were referring to them these days as the gloaming. And oh. uh, he splits his year these days between his hilltop house in Inishtig in County Kilkenny and the ivory towers of Princeton in the US of A. So please welcome Irla. And the fourth member of our quartet is Quiva Butterly. Now, Quiva uh, is a woman who has packed about half of the world into her life because she was born here in Dublin, grew up in Canada, and has worked for various social justice causes around the globe, from Zimbabwe to Mexico. And she's now living back in Dublin here, and, but she works with uh, refugees and migrants here in Ireland, but also in Greece and Lebanon. So, thank you for being here, Quiva. Now, before we get to our wonderful guests, first of all, I get to talk to you. And I'm going to talk to you today about the idea of home, because that is what we are talking about today. And you see, is there anything more Irish than leaving Ireland? <laughs> Your leaving has sort of been bred into us over the generations. Our history and our ambition and our instinct for survival, you know, all favoured the leaving gene. You know, fight or flight. Well, if the fight's unfair, the odds uneven, your chances blighted, that's a pun, uh, well, no contest, F flight, fast track, priority boarding, armrest down, place mask over nose and mouth. But there's a funny thing about this lichen-covered, you know, peat-smeared rock of ours out here in the Atlantic. You can leave it, but it never leaves you, even if it pushed you out in the first place. It leaves a kind of brackish, stubborn stain that's almost impossible to remove entirely, you know, a biological mark that's developed resistance to potions, both bio and non-bio. You can paint over it, you know, shiny new Dulux skin, you know, but eggshell, matte or gloss, it bleeds through your carefully chosen elephant's breath. And still, our birthmark bleeds through. You know, being Irish is a bit like being a stick of rock. You know, the kind that mothers are pestered for at fun fairs and seaside towns, from Bray to Salt Hill, Brighton to Coney Island. You know, it, because it doesn't matter where you pick us up, 
or even where you break us open, because wherever you break us open, right down the center, can still say Ireland. You know, I left after college, though unlike many generations before me, or many people before me, I didn't leave in a veil of tears and gnashing of teeth. I was not a reluctant leaver. You know, I didn't just leave, in fact, I ran. I ran as far as I could away from this stifling rock, and I got as far as Japan, and as far as I was concerned at the time, I wasn't going back. And I didn't miss it. Sure, there were people that I might have missed and occasional things, but I didn't miss the place. And why should I? It definitely didn't miss me. It didn't even like me at the time. And at the time, it made very clear that it didn't miss me or want me. And I was just fine with that, or at least I convinced myself that I was. Not that I thought too much about it. I didn't really have the time. I was spending my time you know, running around Tokyo, running riot, and discovering I did actually like me. In fact, it felt like I was really meeting me for the very first time. I mean, the real me. Because, you know, back on that windswept Atlantic rock, which had been so contorted by its own particular history that it somehow managed to be both looking inward and backward at the same time, I hadn't really been me. I'd only been a potential me. A potential but unrealized me. You know, a matte grey, monotone, caterpillar version of me. But in Tokyo, under the grow lamp heat of a billion neon lights, I metamorphosized, like my friend Dorothy. You do know I'm a friend of Dorothy's. <laughs> um, at home, I'd been in black and white. But in Oz, I was in Technicolor and Stereoscope. But unlike Dorothy, I was in no rush to get back to dull Auntie M. In fact, I blamed poor old Auntie M for my caterpillar years and wanted nothing to do with her or anyone related to her. And if one did wander into my Oz, I would go out of my way to avoid them. You know, <clears throat> Ireland uh, and St. Patrick's Day are neither well-known nor much marked in Japan. But a few years into my Tokyo adventure, one March 17th, a date which I'd hardly even registered, to be honest, you know, arrived at the huge, you know, achingly cool nightclub where I was working at the time. But anyway, on this particular night, this particular March 17th, when I arrived, the manager, he said to me, you're from Iceland, right? And <laughs> I looked at him suspiciously and nodded slowly, agreeing that, yes, I was from Iceland, which is something I had learned to do in Japan, because it's just simpler and easier than trying to explain that Ireland and Iceland are different places. You know, I was from Iceland. I thought so, he said, and he told me that he was expecting in a large group from Iceland tonight. They had reserved some tables because they were celebrating Emperor Patrick's Day, <laughs> and so that would be fun for me, right, to be able to celebrate the birthday of our Emperor Patrick with other people from Iceland. You know, why hadn't I told him it was Emperor Patrick's Day? Happy Emperor of Iceland Day. <laughs> now, like I said, the club, it was big. You know, it had maybe 60 or 70 staff at a nighttime, and even I impressed myself that it only took me about 20 minutes to cover all seven stories and tell every single member of staff that they were not to tell the group from Iceland that I was also from Iceland. <laughs> and never mind why, you know, just don't mention it. If anybody does ask, just say I'm from Australia. Of course, at the time, I hadn't learned yet that I was indelibly marked by this place, and even the coloured lights of a dance floor on the other side of the world were enough to see right through me and reveal the brackish watermark of home. Now, things change, of course, and you know, I changed, and Ireland changed, and I wanted to be part of that change, and that stubborn stain of Irishness started to itch in a way, and all the scratching in the world, it turned out, wouldn't ease it. And so, you know, to no one's surprise more than my own, I suppose, I found myself back here. But 
I was back in an Ireland that was shape-shifting, you know, slowly, occasionally, rapidly, you know, in fits and in starts, not altogether painlessly and not without missteps, but it was changing nevertheless, reshaping itself you know, into a place with space for someone like me. Now, Dorothy and I had both had to leave Kansas to discover our full potential, you know, to realize that we could take on witches, we were as smart as any Emerald City wizard, you know, to find heart and courage and friendship on the yellow brick road or A1. And to discover that all along, home had actually been right under our feet, just three heel clicks away. And like Dorothy, I did click my heels together and back to Kansas, but my Kansas had finally gotten fed up of being in black and white and was digitally colorized. But we didn't have to go back to Kansas, Dorothy and I, we chose to. You know, we could have, like some of my guest Dorothys today, uh, we could have chosen instead to make Oz home we could have taken that you know, indelible stain of Kansas and decorated it and celebrated and made a house and a home out of it. A little bit of Kansas in the middle of Oz. You know, maybe a country cottage on the edge of the haunted forest, just off the yellow brick A1. Or maybe a chic apartment in a ta gleaming tower smack bang in the middle of Emerald City. Because it turns out that Glenda the Good Witch was right all along. And home has always been right under your feet. So today we are, we're talking about the idea of home, and what's interesting is that all of you did something that I didn't, and you sort of made your home wherever you were, in a way. And so, let's start with you, um, Anthony. So you're from County Roscommon. Woo! <laughs> a comic Sheep man like myself. County. We're neighboring. And you felt, I, I'm taking this because I've seen your show, uh, so you felt that you could really be Anthony, in the same way that I felt that I couldn't, at the time, be me in, in here at home, and you went off to London as so many Irish people have done over the last few generations. Tell me about it. I mean, it wasn't even about sexuality for me. It was just sort of the sense of, I mean, I really relate to you in the sense that you kind of left for Japan to create and create yourself. And I, I did something very similar where I went to London and really started from a really sort of an empty box. And yeah, but, but Roscommon is home. Mm. Oh, yeah. Is that still in your mind home or have you made another one? I think Roscommon is home. Like, I was just there to surprise my mum, mm. and it was very grounding. And it's not really the, the community around it that I'm fond of. It's just my family, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I hasten to add, that doesn't mean you hate the community around you. <laughs> but, but, but is it your house and your family? And the farm and the cows and the bog. And you think it's indelibly your home? Or you... I feel best there, but I'm also in London and that is my second home. But also now I'm kind of in this sort of in-between state of like, oh my God, UK is imploding. And then in Ireland we're sort of laughing at London and I'm sort of like stuck in this sort of in-between <laughs> space. But I mean, what was it like for you to be growing up in, in Roscommon? I always felt like I was kind of a, a magical child. <laughs> you know, I did believe I had magic powers. That was my coping mechanism. I would sort of like turn invisible, control thing, you know, move, you know, freeze people and all sorts of sort of, I had my own, complete my own little world. And that's how I dealt with the kind of constant sort of burden of like being a little bit different and treatment from adults and people around me and, and that kind of thing. I, I can appreciate that because we have a similar experience in some ways. I'm from County Mayo, small town, and I always felt weird. And, all. And, and sometimes I think we blame that all on our sexuality or, you know, whatever. But of course, don't all kids feel like that? Yeah, I, I don't think it's, a, I think it's just I was a weird child. And a weird and, adult. And a weird, sexy adult. <laughs> now, yeah. Irla, your home is Cork. 
It was. It was, yes, it was, yeah, yeah. Well, for starters, there was 12 kids. 12 kids, yeah. In fact, I just spoke to my mom today and uh, she had all of her 12 kids before her 34th birthday. I mean, I'm shocked. <laughs> I was in Coulee. In Coulee in West Cork, a place that had a sort of a, an identity within the music world. And so anybody that came from it had a sort of a watermark. You know, I remember I came to Dublin to go to university like anybody else does. Well, that was a huge change for me because I grew up on a farm very high, far away from the nearest village. And, and steeped in traditional Irishness, right? I mean, there was... Traditional everything. Yeah. High-grade Catholicism, <laughs> fully leaded kind of going to church. And Gael Gore. Oh, yeah, the whole thing. So, you know, coming to Dublin was... It wouldn't sound like it today to people, but it was tremendously exciting mm. and strange and hyper-realistic. And um, I fell in love with Dublin. I lived in Dublin for about 15 years. Mm. And I still think of myself as partially Dublin, having spent that much time here. Yeah. I'm very comfortable in Dublin. But uh, back then in the early 80s, it had a sort of darkness to it. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I was here in the early 80s. And so grey. It was very grey. Unrelentingly grey. But there, was, <laughs> there were a lot of pubs. and there was <laughs> I mean, I certainly spent enough time in them to know that they were fun at times. But yeah. um, I grew up in a very confined sort of world, but I had a sort of a visa in that I could navigate within the music world pretty easily. You were also from a very musical family, right? I mean, Yes, my mother's family were known as traditional singers for generations. In, in a sense, there were sort of expectations maybe as was part of that, which was uncomfortable. Mm. I did a lot of the com competitive singing that people do, and um, I grew tired of that by the time I was about 16. Uh, it was an enormous pressure. Then mm. I... I did what other people do. I did, went into bands and all sorts of kind of various types of music making. The kindness of your parents were supportive of or? Uh, <laughs> I never told them much about it, <laughs> to be honest. You definitely from Cork. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, they were, they were very supportive of, of everything I've ever done. I'm very fortunate. But they, would they always have been supportive of everything I was doing? Probably not. I mean, what, how could they be? I was like everybody else. I was mm. against going home for years. I couldn't bear the thought of going home. I wanted to leave home. Mm. I mean, my house was very crowded. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, I remember when my, my sister uh, left for college, I remember complaining to the management, you know. I, sa I said to my parents, this place is going to go to hell. <laughs> because there was 10 boys, ten right? 10 boys, I mean, and it did go to hell. Oh, my God. I mean, there were fights and, I mean, there was a lot of aggro. So I, could, I was a kind of a quiet chap, and I, I couldn't wait to get out. But then as I, when you, you know, my late 20s, I, I started to spend more time at home. I love going home. And do you still also still sing as a sort of a 12-piece or whatever? No. You were all in the choir, right? No, yeah, but we, we, we never sang as a kind of a family. That never... There is a whole missed opportunity there. Is. there. <laughs> well, now, Quiva Butterly, your experience is, couldn't be more different than that. Slightly. Yeah, yeah, so you were born here, but then your mother went to Canada where she fell in love with a UN economist. Mm. After that, it was all over. Your home was a passport. Yeah, I'd say my trajectory was sort of the opposite way around in the sense that mm. I was born here and then my mom was a single mother at the time in 19, late 1970s, conservative Ireland, mm. and she immigrated to Canada. Although the father who raised me yeah. was from Dublin as well. Oh. So my three parents actually met in the Simon community in, in Ireland in the late 1970s and ended up, yeah, all, all being very much a part of my life in very different <laughs> ways. So both my biological and my nurture father. Your nurture father is the UN economist. Mm. Yeah. Although that was sort of later on in life, they, they actually, they were both quite 
precarious migrants in Canada for most of my childhood. Mm. And so our experience was very much, to begin with, one of sort of working class migrants in, in Nova Scotia. And I went through an education system that was well ahead of its time in the sense of, I was just thinking it's probably the, the antithesis of what a lot of you experienced, but just in the sense of being extremely politically progressive and mm. really great in terms of racism and homophobia. And it was just an extremely diverse school mm. of a lot of children from sort of first generation migrant backgrounds from across the globe. Oh. So it was it was sort of when I was older that we then, my dad started working sort of with non-governmental mm. and then governmental organizations as well. Um, and my mother, who's a psychotherapist who works with trauma, her, her job was actually the job that took us in places as well. Because you, you were in, you grew up in places like Mauritius and... And yeah, uh, yeah so like, Mauritius and then Zimbabwe. And then I moved to New York and then I worked in Latin America for a number of years in Mexico and Guatemala and Haiti. And then eventually in Palestine, yeah, Iraq, Lebanon see, like, and that's briefly in Syria. Yeah, yeah. And then I came back seven years or eight years ago. So my, I think my trajectory has been different in the sense that it's been in the last eight years that I've been beginning to sort of, yeah, just get a sense of much more rooted identity in a country that sort of occupied for a lack of having to go into that whole long lineage of sort of countries when asked where I was from going yeah, up, I, I would just say Ireland. Yes. And yet my, my connection to Ireland was very ephemeral. It was through sort of visits here every few years. And um, is that what you always say? You never said I'm Canadian. To begin with, up until a certain age, and then when we left Canada, we never went back. So, it, like, I left at twelve. So, my childhood was very rooted there, and a lot of sort of my memoryscape of childhood is is very much in Nova Scotia. But as sort of time went on, and the place that I came back to was here, yeah, it sort of unfurled as as a deeper sense of identity. And when I came back, I had come out of sort of witness and working on ambulances in a few quite yeah very painful war contexts yeah. in Gaza and other contexts. So, I came back with a real need just to ground my Myself in something beyond the intensity of, of witness of injustice and, and war. So I went to Nishmore um, and I spent about nine months just, just trying to ground myself with a more en- elemental energy around sort of seascape. And part of my spirit was just was yearning for maybe, yeah, just the emotional intimacy and community and vibrancy of my life before that in Latin America and the Middle East and other contexts. Yeah, because it's one of those things most people never think about, where are you from? Yeah. Most yeah, yeah. people just know how to answer that question. And so we, we spend no sort of psychic energy on it. Mm. But yours has all been uh, scattered. Where the hell yeah. am I from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I was sort of getting at in the, the monologue there was about, um, you know, deciding where your home is. Mm. And in a sense, you didn't have an address like most of us, sort mm. of, so we can sort of make that easily. But in a way, you came back to Ireland, discovered at seven months pregnant that you were pregnant. Yes. What? <laughs> no, no, no. And then had, know that the had your son. And yeah. my impression is that in a way, your home now is wherever he is. And that has sort of... Yes, yes, in terms of anchor. But it was more, I felt, because I still work in refugee camps in Lebanon in different contexts. So I take him with me oftentimes. So he's used to a fluidity of... He's very adaptable. But on a spiritual level, he's been my anchor, I think, in the sense that through him... Yeah, I, I've I've sort of relearned in a way through watching his process, you know, within this country, but of of identity formation, and also recognizing in a way that that you can hold multiple identities, you know. Yeah. And but yeah, no, he was he was the primary reason initially for staying, but then it just became it's it's for me probably similarly to how you you described it, but a place of grounding and calm and 
perhaps maybe because when I do work with refugee communities, yeah. it is in quite intense contexts. I come back here and I literally feel it's almost, and, and I don't mean monastic in its religious connotation, but I, I feel that just the stone and the bog sometimes and the seascapes and the gray even, I find mm. extraordinarily grounding and calming and it, it resonates on a spiritual yeah. level. But Rona, you went to London too. Now you are a Northside girl yeah, that's from right. a super academic family. Pretty much, yeah. I grew up in Glasnevin, home of, you know, the Botanical Gardens and the Met Office. And your father's Alan professor. Yes, he is professor of the Irish language and a writer and very smart man. It was an awful shock for him when I came along and was much, much smarter than him. And uh, (laughs) and obviously way more modest. And uh, I'm one of five kids. And I mean, we lived in that house in Griffith Avenue from, I think we moved in there when I was about two. Mm. And I absolutely loved Dublin with every fibre of my being. Like, I felt like such a Dublin chick. And I just thought Dublin was the best place in the world. And I actively said, I will never leave Dublin. And I think I thought I was such a city city girl as well. Like, oh, drop me in the middle of Shanghai and I'd know my way around. Oh, yeah. You know, just because I could get the bus from Glasnevin into Grafton Street. Um, <laughs> really, like, high opinion of myself. And um, I went to, went to school on the old Finglas Road primary school and then went to secondary school in the centre of town. And then I went to Trinity and studied drama and English there. And it was only when I realized that I wanted to train as an actor that I was like, oh, I might need to go somewhere else because there was only two places in Dublin at the time where you could train. And I had already studied at both of them as a kid. And I was like, they do not want to have me back. The ambition was to be an actor first. Yeah. I mean, I never really thought about writing until I sort of fell into it as a way of writing parts for myself. And so that kind of But when did you find out you were funny? Um, birth, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I applied to and got into Lambda, which is a really lovely school over there. And I was doing a two-year course and I was absolutely convinced that I would go over, train as an actor, and then the second I graduated, probably the same day, I would be back on that first flight because I really loved Dublin theatre and I loved the community and I was just dying to come back here and make work. And then I think I was in London about a, a week when I uh, realised, yeah, very quickly, oh, I'm not going home. And now I have two years to figure out how to break it to my mother. Um, but what was it about London? So I think it was just the size. I did drama at Trinity and I went to see everything that was on in Dublin. And I feel like at that time, which is over 10 years ago now, if you went to the theatre twice a week, you could yeah. see everything that was on. And when I got to London, I realised that there was sort of like 40 theatres within spitting distance. Yeah. I was like, ah, okay, there's going to be more work here and more opportunity. And as it turns out now, like to skip to the present, I work in TV comedy and yeah. there is just just such a huge industry over there. Mm. Like I think RTE make, I don't know, maybe uh, four comedy series a year and in a week I'll be, because I'm freelance, I'll be across four different TV yeah. comedy shows. And so it just became about size. Uh, not that size matters. <laughs> uh, but in this context, queen. size really matters. Uh, and also in the bedroom. But are you, are you, are you there, you know, then you just purely for career reasons and you would move back here if there was a huge TV industry here or... Is it more than that? I mean, it's a good question. Like, I do come back all the time. I come back, you know, five or six times a year. And, like, I can go from my house in London to my parents' house in Dublin in under three hours. Like, it takes me longer than that to get my hair done sometimes. You're the same, I'm sure. (laughs) So I love Irish people, and I love being near the sea, and I love, you know, the crack is kind of different over here. So I feel like if there was a huge industry in TV comedy here, it would be much more likely that I would be there. But because that doesn't exist, and that's kind of, like, 
a hypothetical. I am in a place where where that industry is, and and you know now I've bought a house and I've taken a wife. And is this I, the, well, well, <laughs> I, I, I lazily referred to her as being gay earlier, and she corrected me very quickly. I was like panty hashtag by visibility. Yes, I mean, I'm sorry for erasing you. Get woke. That's what I said. <laughs> and, and well, it's, it's actually it's very interesting who you married you in this context of this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Because you are married to an English girl yeah. who comes from an Asian Sri Lankan background. Yes, that's right. And um, I, well, God, I hate to even get into Brexit already, but yeah. you know, this, the, you know, England has either just changed or it's revealed something about itself that we yeah. had ignored for a while. Yeah. And you have an Irish accent. And you. your wife doesn't look, you know, like a Brexiteer might want an English lady to look, yeah. you know. So do you still feel... London's home? Well, it's a great question because I am such a city chick and I love to be where there's galleries and mm. theatre and my partner, she grew up in the Lake District and she was kind of the only Asian in the village and she yeah. was the only gay in the village and she certainly felt that a little bit but she still really loves the countryside yeah. and so we've been together nearly 10 years now and uh, she's kind of often said oh, I'd love to move to the countryside and I've often said oh, no, I just smashed a cup so there's no way we can have that conversation <laughs> uh, and really tried because I just do not want to leave London. And then when Brexit happened, it did... Okay, we're going to have the Brexit conversation yeah, well, now. And then I mean, you, we'll have a song to yeah, erase it from our memory. You, but I mean, <laughs> you did bring it up, so you can't, yes, you no, can't pretend it, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, <laughs> has it changed how you think about your adopted home? Or are you in your London bubble with your partner and your yeah. TV comedy writing? Like... Has it changed for you? It definitely has. And also because I'm, some of the shows that I write for are topical comedy shows. Mm-hmm. So I will have to like digest the news cycle and then find a way to make the eighth vote that week about <laughs> Brexit entertaining when it's just not on any conceivable level. Um, it is entertaining and on so some it does, conceivable level. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I seeing say, the Brits like tie themselves up it. in knots, it's very entertaining. I still feel like I'll be able to stay in London because, you know, I'm a, a privileged Irish person. Yes, and but do you we want don't need to, to stay leave. in somewhere that you, the relationship has changed. I do, okay. just that's where my career is. And yeah. unfortunately, it's a career that I couldn't have here currently. Yeah. And then now, Anthony, you're also living in Brexit land. Has it changed how you feel about your adopted home? It makes Irish people very popular. You know, um, I run a club night called Sodom and Bagara, which is like this Sodom and Buggery comment there um, but a lot of the Brits come because they feel much more comfortable with us you know liberal Irish people because we've kind of moved forward so much but then at the same time I don't really think I could ever live here London is kind of a vehicle for me you know it's anonymous I feel as a self-proclaimed um, attention seeker I love that no one knows who you are and yeah. I find that really freeing. And well, you know, when I was younger, I definitely felt that. But I, my, my feelings evolved all the time. And God only knows how I feel about it next week. But you know, the things that I that used to, to not like about you know Dublin or Ireland, you know, I've grown to appreciate as I got older. And, and size is one of them. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I, like I didn't like when I was younger that every you know you could walk into town and bump into people, and it felt like home because you were just bumping into people whereas now I love it oh I hate that <laughs> I had a teacher from uh, when I was in secondary school at the, bu- at the train today and I literally just put on my fab jacket and was like <laughs> <laughs> like I just don't want to engage it's not because I don't love people but it's just this sort of what are they going to say to me I look really funny I'm wearing like loads of colours oh it's going to be like a bit uncomfortable you know I like being at home and then evaporating into London Early, you are living in the United States of America which has its own sort of 
issues you know, <laughs> about identity and all that. Now, you're in Princeton, so it's all very aghast at Trump in Princeton. Yes. I should clarify, he's not just homeless there. I mean, he's working there <laughs> in, in an august university. I remember yes. I was at a concert in Princeton when the election was happening. Everybody was super confident that Hillary would win because mm. this economist in Princeton had made the prediction. He's, he's the world authority on predicting outcomes of, of elections. And he even said that he would eat a bug if his prediction didn't work out. And he ate the bug a few weeks later. And in fact, I remember getting emails from colleagues saying, the meeting is on at 11. We will not be talking about the election. Mm. Wow. There was a lot of that going on. And in fact, I rarely have ever talk about it in Princeton because nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. So it's like the big kind of elephant that nobody wants to see. But, but has it changed your relationship with your adopted home? Yeah, I think so, because it has asked of anybody who's not born there, I think, to think beyond the sort of notion of America as this extraordinary place of opportunity, of freedom, of openness. All of these ideas, these concepts have become very oddly refracted yeah. since Trump came in. You can't really believe in that stuff anymore, but there also is an awakening awareness that they need to examine themselves as a, as a place, mm -hmm. a country that thought it knew what it was. Yeah. It's such a large place, it is very difficult for them not to be divided. You know, people, they, they trot off these ideas, oh, America's divided. You know, yeah, well... Why wouldn't it be? It's mm. so big. I mean, you, you fly for a couple of hours out of New York and you are in a different world. But that division has been you know, heightened, it's been more polarized than ever. I, it has. It it's, it's come into focus, you know, because we're hearing probably voices we didn't care to hear before. Mm. The outcome of the election has revealed what was already there. Yes. But it feels good, doesn't it, to be Irish and like, oh. <laughs> I always make a joke, we have a gay Indian prime minister <laughs> who is a Tory though, and they're, they're always like, oh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it is funny to be in a position yes. where, like, an Irish passport is, like, gold. <laughs> um, I swear, I was in the airport yesterday and someone said, oh, my God, the UK people are in a separate queue now. I think they were actually putting the UK passengers into this non-EU queue. But, 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 but actually, but you're right, because also Brexit has put, you know, Ireland and Irish issues front and centre in a way that never had before. Like, suddenly people know who Arlene Foster is. But does Arlene Foster know who Arlene Foster is? <laughs> yeah. That's the big question. I think, she knows, who, I think she knows who she is. Well, a lot of Brits are visiting Northern Ireland for the well, first time. They have no idea. I don't even know if they are visiting. Yeah. That's, no, the, that's yeah. the sad thing. Let's brush that from our minds. Um, because, Irla, you're in America. What, did the, what does America have? It has its own version of royalty, which is movie stars. And you oh, are wow. a movie star. Star of Brooklyn. Well, tell us about, you give us a little bit of background there, because it's well, fun. Well, the song, the song is actually about a barrier as well. It's an unusual uh, kind of love song, boy meets girl love song. But he goes to the door to meet her, and mom meets him, and she makes him wind this hay rope. And by the time it's come to shape, it's gotten quite long, so he's outside the door, and then she slams the door <laughs> on him. And then, then the rest of the song is quite, in some ways, typically Irish kind of, it's oligoning the fact that, oh, things didn't work out and he's a very old person. And yes, I did get to sing it on a movie. Yes. And I was playing a, a very old man, which is not very hard for me. <laughs> I was the youngest old man in a queue that walked up for dinner in a sort of a poor parish hall operating for poor people 
in, in Brooklyn, as it were, but it was shot in Montreal. Well, why don't you sing it for our beautiful audience here? The castle Kalinda Saharam in Wagonis Nadram. Er Luibna Quille is Glishi, where if Yogrim Mahavian to Lum Bihilu, 
Listening to you there, I was having I had two thoughts. The first was a lovely thought about how it doesn't really matter that my Irish isn't good enough to get the meaning of every word. Somehow it speaks to me anyway, just my Irish soul or something. And then I remember that we used to have a gay night in Panty Bar years ago called Poor House, and people would wear bonines and stuff and do Irish listening comprehension tests, but it'd be just like dirty stuff. And then people would like do their own Shandos versions of things like, you know, Madonna's like a virgin. <laughs> and I would recommend you try that sometime. You know. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I, <laughs> I just remembered when I was listening to it, I had totally forgotten, because when we're talking about home and home away from home and for the most part I flip between these two places London and Dublin that are really close to each other and I think you know I've never lost my accent my family are here I speak to them every, I come back all of the time but when I went to see Brooklyn in the cinema and I've just remembered it started and a few minutes in I had a little cry so I had a little tear you know rolling down my cheek and then the film progressed and I cried nine more times like I wept like I was you know being sent off on a coffin ship like by myself you know with my fortune tied up and a little bindle stick uh -huh. like it triggers something huge in me that must be a kind of an innate thing of you know of emigrating uh, mm. and I, I could not believe the the effect that it had on me now one of the things that you all touched on early in the first uh, conversation Irla you sort of touched on it I mean, and you and also about the refugees was this a sort of sense of othering people or having to sort of prove your loyalty in a way or something but it's interesting because one of the things that I find interesting about you Mr. Roscommon is that after Roscommon famously was the only part of the country to vote no to the same-sex marriage referendum that you felt a sort of responsibility or a debt or something to Roscommon because you felt that the jokes and all that were in some way being mean to Roscommon and we were suddenly othering Roscommon <laughs> and you sort of wanted to change I'm, that perception. I made a pop concert set in a bog. You did, yeah. <laughs> I remember I was doing a show in Edinburgh Fringe and I, it's very camp and fun about Eurovision and afterwards a girl came up to me and was like, where are you from? I'm from Kerry. And I was like, I'm from Roscommon. And she literally was like, that's disgusting. <laughs> I was so shocked. I was like, I can't speak, I can't speak to you now. This, this is too much. She said, I'm from the real west of Ireland, Kerry. So I don't know what was going on with her. But she was just trying to interact. That's she, I know. And, uh, and then at the same time, I'd found my confirmation booklet and you know, some sort of things were kind of lining up and I thought, oh, this would be a really interesting kind of thing, explore my home being queer in rural Ireland and kind of reinvent those things that we all kind of are bored of, you know, like fairies and things that we kind of are kind of cliched. And I was like, yeah. let's make them gay. And um, explore You wanted that. to make fairies gay. Yeah. I oh, really, big challenge. a very heteronormative Fairy. community. <laughs> but you did go back to Roscommon and your old school and you're like... I did you, it. It wasn't and it was, a passing it was, thought. It was quite traumatising, really. Like, I found it very hard and making the show is very personal and like I was going back to places where I was eight years old and a teacher I was being bullied for being I didn't even know what gay was but mm. I got pulled out and the, the guys that were saying you're gay were pulled out as well and she just turned to me and went like 
are you gay? I was eight years old. Like I, and that tr- so I went back and that, that person may or may not still be there and may not have seen the show. And, and we recorded the music for the show. The kids recorded the choir and all sorts of stuff and recorded it in the same space that that had happened. And like it was really, for me, even after the show in Dublin Fringe, um, and it's going to Edinburgh Fringe this year as well, everyone. But you know, so when you tell your story, it sounds like you were just like out of Roscommon. You were going to London. You're, it's your big candy box of opportunity and, and all of that. And yet, yeah, you dedicated a lot of your time and your work to sort of trying to, I don't know, rehabilitate the image of Roscommon. And I kind of stopped now because it's re- <laughs> it's a, it's a, I couldn't get into a bloody club at Christmas time because I was like, my trainers were not, my neighbor came out and was like, well, if you can't afford good shoes, then you can't, which was like code for gay, you know, like you can't. And I'm like, all the stuff that oh, I've done so we for you. You put Roscommon on the map. I have. I continue to do so. But, and, they, and they're very. Uh, Roscommon County Council are really supportive. They funded the show, and I, I've gone back and I've made like a podcast with like eight-year-old kids. And I've, yeah, it was the podcast you just asking them all if they're gay. <laughs> 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 are you? Are you? We ask eight-year-olds in Roscommon. So I basically like let the kids tell me their stories. There was one girl who just talked about Charlie the Tree, and she was like, "Charlie the Tree is real. He's been chopped down, and he's talking to me." And he's saying that he really misses his arms. But I just sort of let the kids talk and there was all these mad characters and, and we created an alternate reality called The Third Mountain. I'm not buying this London thing at all. You're going to be back in Roscommon. Yeah. You know, I need to give up. Your relationship with Roscommon is still unhealthy. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> My mother is actually from Roscommon and she spoke no! about... Yes, yes. <laughs> but she, she grew up on a farm and she talked about that desire to want to escape but also thinking that America was just over the mountain in front of their farm and, and that desire from when she was probably the age of the children that you're working with, but just to, to go, to leave. And the complication in a way of, of coming back and the complexity, you know, of, of the emotions that it stirs in terms of, of belonging and family, but also, yeah, just that, that desire to leave as well that I, I think continues in some ways. <laughs> I work with both teenagers and small children in Ireland these days around development education and yeah. sort of human rights. But I, I was just thinking on, on relation to children, like they're, my experience, particularly of teenagers in Ireland these days, is that they're amazing. They're deeply politicized, they're mm-hmm. empathetic, they're engaged, oh they're God. critically yeah. analytical, you... and they are so confident Big of thinkers. grassroots sort of action. So mm. yeah, I think a lot of a room for, and development, yeah, for just a really creative outlet for a lot of ideas with, with young people. But what's your impression of Ireland now? It's mixed. I feel a level of concern and unease that I haven't felt um, in the seven years that I've been back over the last year in terms of with the burning of the direct provision yes. hostage and Ruski and other contexts. I, I see that amongst a lot of young people that I work with, the vast majority are amazing. They're empathetic, they're mm-hmm. engaged, but there has been this seeping mm-hmm. populism. Yeah. But on a personal level, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy here. Um, I have a lovely yeah, community of, of friends and I work with amazing people. Um, but I, I think a lot of the accounts that I'm hearing from refugee and asylum-seeking communities are deeply worrying. And whether that is overt in terms of hate crime, whether that is just sort of the everyday, quote-unquote, more casualized racism, and no racism is casualized in the yeah. sense of so just the, like the violence of racism. its impact. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, because in a way, it's the flip side, isn't it, this idea of home, that then you're, there are these people who sort of, to an extreme, start defending it as their home and not mm-hmm. anyone else's. But I'm interested in, so Brona, you're in London, and it's one of the great international cities, because everybody from everywhere is there. Do you feel, well, that racism has become a, more of an issue or is that 
all in our heads. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time. Like, the, you know, the lovely thing about London is I live in Walthamstow, which is in East London, and, you know, there's a really long, famous market there, and it feels like you can walk from one side of that market up to the top, which is about a 20-minute walk, and you will have heard, I don't know, 30 languages. But that's, that's my favourite thing about London, and definitely now there is, I guess it's a state of limbo at the moment because people just really genuinely don't know what what is coming or what it means if there's practical implications if mm. they will actually be deported if there's visas to be applied for and so you know it is just a, a, a little bit of a time of tension but I definitely think that like when my partner and I go outside of London to go for a walk you suddenly start to see a lot more BNP flags and UKIP and UKIP flags that you don't see in London which is why you're reminded that there is kind of this world. other it's a yeah there's totally this other world. part of England that wants to make England something that London by its very nature is the exact opposite of so it is this kind of tension of trying to make a country you know you're arguing with reality really like if you're saying you know international people can't be in London but London exists and is a and is a city of international people then yeah you know what is what is going to happen do you feel that Andy? We're very much free pass Irish, play up the Irish thing. It's fresh for them now. We're like, cool, you know. I, I think we live in a bubble in London. We're not, I remember some friends of mine had like gone um, to Yorkshire to do some training for a job they were doing and it was a clothing job and it was a totally different vibe. That, you know, men wouldn't fold the clothing. That's the women, you know, there was, and it, the racism was really thick. So like, Ireland, when I w- lived abroad, the things that I missed mostly were being able to have casual, easy conversations with people with references that we all understood. So, you know, if you're Irish here, we can talk about Wanderley Wagon and Bosco, stupid stuff that, that, you know, individually is nothing. But if you are living in a place where you can never make those casual references and you constantly have to, oh no, there's no point saying that. That was the thing that made me start to question, could I live there forever? Yeah, because you know, when you, when you, you go to a place first, there's a sort of a fascination, isn't there? Mm. It, to be even understood sometimes in these places is, is, is an incomplete sort of phenomenon. Yeah. I, find, uh, I find a tendency in myself to play up my Irishness, which I try to dampen because I, I, I kind of, I can be the funny guy, you know what I mean? Yeah. But you're also a singer. I mean, like, yeah. you know. But they, they, you know, they don't know what that is for the most part. I mean, you know, Shandos didn't even exist as a word mm. internationally until very recently, if, if it does now. But like, I, I, I often find sometimes like the Irish guy, you know, uh, one of the first times I, I went to Princeton, I met a, a composer and he said, hey, you're the Irish guy, because <laughs> he'd met me before. But I, I tend not to worry about those things anymore. I mean, I, I like to talk about people, about the things that they want to talk about, yeah, the things that we have in common, which is music making for the most part. There's not a whole lot of discussion about politics or even identity in that yeah. sense. There is a fascination with Ireland, however, which I find the Americans have, even even though you will meet mostly people who aren't of Irish extraction, mm. they, they still seem to they know more about Ireland than we deserve. Well, I mean, there's also a sense that we will lazily accuse British and American people of being disinterested in the rest of the world. It's a kind of a cliche, but it is also true. Now, you can find reasons for it and say, why do 50% of Americans not have a passport? Well, they have, their country is so huge, you know, they don't really... And we live in a little rock, and you could row a boat to another country. It's an entirely different way of seeing the world. 
And we are forced to look outwards. And we are also forced to look at bigger, you know, more powerful, looming cultures and nations that are, you know, because we know it's going to affect, you know, what happens there will affect us. Whereas they don't give a crap what happens in Ireland. You know, why should they? But it is still true that many Americans are not interested in learning about the rest of the world. Again, it depends on where you are, you know. I mean, yes. I, I, my, the nearest city to me is New York. So, like, they're yes. interested in everything and nothing at the same time. Mm. <laughs> they're very interested in themselves. And, and could you and live there? I could. New York's fascinating. You, I mean, you if you were could just get like, over the yes, noise. I could. Yeah, I could, <laughs> because I spend a lot of time in there anyway, working and stuff. I think, like you were saying earlier, it's, it's great to be in a city where you can melt mm-hmm. into nothingness and just be the person that you really are rather than, oh, you're so-and-so and you have to be that guy because of where you came from. Yes. No, I'm so-and-so because of what I do and how I think and what I have to say. In places like New York and London, you can find the part of yourself that I think Ireland tends to diminish in the bigger space. Yeah. yeah. And I think, if, I don't know if that resonates for you guys. Well, it's so funny because I've lived in London for six years and that kind of like, ooh, it's so exciting, has totally worn off. But when I went to New York two weeks ago, I was back wearing makeup on my face. I was <laughs> in my jumpsuit. I was like, I am here. New York is amazing. But then, of course, we don't have to deal with Trump. So, you yeah. know, we're like tourists over in this new place. But it is... There's so many scenes in New York, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So many, and they're complete. I mean, these places are very alienating too. That is a fact. Yeah. Would I be happy to move there tomorrow? I live half the year in Kilkenny you can't even see a house from my house not one you, I've tried believe me <laughs> you cannot see anything except trees and, and stuff and I love that yeah I mean I do well that's also a, you know the thing about people trying to put you in a box or having to be one identity only no, I think that's a really valid point I think we're much more in between as mm. creatures than, than we allow ourselves I mean I have three teenage kids now and they allow themselves anything and yeah. everything in the way they think. Certainly, I think compared to when I, when I was growing up, uh, they have far, far more color in their yeah. visual range than I than I appeared to have. I, I think I was very monochrome, mm, to yeah, chime yeah. with what you said earlier. Well, but, uh, but at the moment then, there's this push from ethno-nationalists and all sorts for everybody to pick an identity and yeah. stick with it. And I'm like, no, the whole point of... Yeah, there's something kind of inherently confusing in a way for me about this conversation because on the one hand, there's like a bit of my brain that believes, oh my God, we drew all these lines down this globe and we completely made it up. Yep. And like, you know, sure, some tectonic plates shifted or, you know, I'm, I'm no scientist. Um, but, you know, the country's formed, but then there are also loads of borders that are completely, you know, uh, made by humans. And I'm sure you would agree in terms of your work, we've like we've become really obsessed with how we allow people to move over those Mm -hmm. borders to the detriment of their safety and their health and their life and so you know there's a part of me that thinks that it's also nuts we've constructed it we've completely made it up what the hell is a country and then there's another part of me that's like cut me open and I'll bleed green like I'm Irish to my core (laughs) I will arm wrestle you if you say but you can believe both things at the same time well exactly yeah exactly they're they're not actually contradictory you're right I can I believe that I Till the day I die, mm. you know, you'll cut me open and I'll be Irish. Yeah. But I can be Irish anywhere I want to be. Yeah. And, and yeah. home is me. So who cares where it is, yeah. as long as I'm happy there. Home is where I've, like, signed in on Netflix on the telly. Exactly. <laughs> and can I have your account? <laughs> um, although we were talking about earlier, like, uh, 
You you were mentioning that you listen to radio. Uh, oh, I'm known as in London. They call me Marion Finucane. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I was in Barcelona last June and I was doing Marion Finucane. I was explaining to my Irish friends what the hell was happening in Ireland. They don't have a. I'm 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 kind of obsessed with everything. Well, that's you know, happening. most of the rest of the world does not wake up to the kind of radio that we wake up. Oh, to. it's there's a like they're just the way they speak. You never, and, it's fun. I do exactly the same. Like when I get up in the morning, I can listen back to Sean O'Rourke straight oh, away. I love Sean. And then, you know, on Saturday, because that's what I do every Saturday in Ireland. So I kind of recreate that mm. in my apartment. I kind of, I kind of have late oh breakfast. Oh, my God. Marion Finucane, Finucane is That's home. bizarre. <laughs> I mean, we practiced. We brought her here. She's coming in. <laughs> she, she's Marion it. Finucane yeah. is the answer. She's it. But it's funny because you're, you're kind of inflating a kind of a, a bubble there that isn't real in a sense. Or I'm saying this about myself. To create a sensation of home or some, some, mm. some semblance of home. Well, in also, it's because Irish people, we have this amazing ability to talk and also they're very good at analysing things and compared to the Brits, British at the moment, like there is no conversation happening in Britain. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, but, uh, but we are going to finish this up with another song from Irla, Speak to Our Irish Soul. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a very small song called Sour Sour. Sour, sour, bang in the moment. Hogamer fain and souring. Sour, breen and noting clay gal. The hogamer fain and souring. Hogamer ling a oil craving. Hogamer fain and sour a ling Sour a bwee all eatin' a grainin' Shall hogamer fain and sour a ling Quillin' is call as traum as quairin' Hogamer fain and sour a ling Call is traum is quairin' Hogamer fain and sour a ling On fween shoglegal bail on aha Shall hogamer fain and sour a Sour a sour a bang in the nounin' Hogamer fain and sour a ling Sour a bwee all evening grainin' The hogamer fain and sour a ling Hogamer ling a ochil crevig Hogamer fain and sour a ling Sour a bwee all evening grainin' Thank you, Ira. That is it from us on this episode of Pantasocracy. Uh, you can 
catch up on this and every other episode of Pantasocracy via podcast. And you can, if you go to pantasocracy.ie, you can get links to those and also videos of all the performances and stuff. So uh, just finally, I want to say thanks again to all of my guests, Irlo Jenner, uh, Br- Brona Titley, Anthony Heger, and Kuiva Butterly. And um, thank you so much for being with us. And thanks for the studio audience. And thank you at home for listening. Join us next time. Bye-bye. Yeah.